Hello and welcome to Brain Trust Live number 489. This week on the podcast, Ben Softness, a resident legal expert who, we must remind you, is in no way representing the views of Alphabet Inc., joins us to discuss the recent Trump legal action. Plus, can we move on as a people from caring about Taylor Swift? And if a tree falls in the South Carolina primary and no voters hear it, did an election actually occur? Plus, hot takes from a low-stakes California Senate candidate forum. And the new potential immigration bill might be a paperwork nightmare for drug cartels. We'll have all this and more. This is Brain Trust Live. Hey, y'all, I'm Brent. I'm Lila, and you can find us on the web at www.braintrustlive.com. That's right. We have a pretty special episode coming to you this week, because later on, we're going to have Ben Softness, our resident legal expert, who, we must remind you, is in no way representing the views of Alphabet Incorporated, (laughs) (laughs) Um, on to discuss some of the recent Trump legal actions. But before we bring him on, we are going to discuss with you some of the election's recent actions, the election world's recent actions, and also the weather. <laughs> right. Because Our first note on the dock is rain. Listen. It's happening. We don't mean to you be might making hear it. small talk with you guys. But it's, it's How's the weather out there? It's rainy. <laughs> We're Here's the thing. California has been having bigger rainstorms than it used to. And like, whatever. That's life. I do feel like Recently, reporting of this particular rainstorm has said words like catastrophic oh, and yeah. loss of life. Life-threatening, yeah, exactly. So I am... But in, remember the hurricane that also just the like dro- the dropped like, you know... An ounce a, of rain. A little bit of, of rain and... <laughs> and then got kind of windy. Gen- <laughs> yeah. And also, um, I feel we like... We love to hype up a weather event here know, in Los Angeles. But, and I'm not saying that it's not going to be bad because they're saying it's bad. The National Weather Service is saying it's yeah. going to be bad. So, you know, it's well, probably it's going like, to be bad. It's but, like, like snow in the south. We are a place that is a desert, so we're not, like, the the ground is not prepared for rain. We're not prepared for rain. Nobody has a plan here. They're just warning us instead of doing, there's nothing (laughs) to do, you know? Um, I've put a tiny little hat on my car because my car has a leak, no one knows what to do, so Uh I had to put a hat on it. Um, But if you don't hear from us next week, it's because we washed away, I think. (laughs) Right, yeah. It's because the hat on my car did not protect us from being able to get out alive. Um, so if you um, are a person who knows a person in L.A. and you want to send a panicky text message to them, as oh, yeah. every member of my family has done, uh-huh. um, this would be the time. Yeah. So get on that. Yeah, for sure. We also have to talk a little bit about Taylor Swift and sorry about it. We're not going to talk about her in the sense that we care about Taylor Swift. We, we don't. resolutely do not. <laughs> it seems like a lot of people in the political sphere currently care about Taylor Swift, though. Well, she might be... Um, a psyop of the Democratic Party to somehow be working for some agency that is going to get Joseph Biden elected to be the president or something like that. Can you imagine like a a random like teen country singer turned pop star is like a special like secret plant by the Democratic establishment? The only thing that makes me feel like that could possibly be real is because that is something that the Democratic Party would spend a lot of planning on as opposed to planning any specific thing that might actually convince someone to vote for them in an election. As opposed to telling us what they'll do for us and then also delivering on that. That's right. Yeah. Uh This this is easier. Like why promise something that you're going to be held to later when you can just trick everybody by use of Taylor Swift? 
And what are they using her for? Just like a, to be alive in America? She hasn't I don't said know. anything. Like what? At most, she'll what endorse Joe Biden, and I then know. what? And it has also sort of like involved like NFL games being fixed or something, you know, well, like by the, the Chiefs being able to get into the Super Bowl, and now everybody's tracking whether she can make this 13-hour flight from Japan after her concert to get there. It, or not. I did. It's too. <laughs> Fucking much. And that brings me to my larger point about Taylor Swift, yes. which we just said we weren't going to talk about <laughs> Taylor Swift right. outside of this whole thing. But, like, I we need to just stop as a people talking about Taylor Swift. That's too true. For one thing, I don't care enough about football to have that get tied into what is already a topic I don't care no. about, Taylor Swift. So now we have combined two topics that I don't care about into one <laughs> mega topic where I am getting constant <laughs> updates on on Twitter, on any social media platform, yeah. via just people having news about gossip. Yeah. Like, about two things I don't care about. Yeah. And I hate it. I don't want to have... First of all, you know I don't want to know about the Super Bowl. <laughs> it's next weekend. I... I didn't know that. <laughs> I knew that the Chiefs were in it because of yeah, Taylor sure. Swift. Uh-huh. I don't know what the other team is, and I know it's not the Green Bay Packers, so I know I don't have anyone to root it's for. It's the 49ers. Yeah, well, that is a California team. California, there you go. Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm going <laughs> to... I guess I like to pick a side just because it's more fun. Nobody wants the Chiefs to win. Oh, okay, great. Resolutely. Like, oh, that's I mean, good. That's, okay, yeah, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice that we all can come together on something. Yeah. Without Green Bay in the mix, I just often don't know where right. to go. It's you the know? people's team. It's the people's team. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the 2% people's team. <laughs> right. I think it's only owned like a tiny percentage right. by the people. But that's more than the Green Bay Packers or the 49ers. So that's what's important. Um, we are, I hope, going to not have to further invest in any mathematical skills to figure out Taylor Swift's flight schedule because that has been a math problem I have not been interested in solving. I know. I know. It's it does beyond. feel like a math teacher problem, though, where they're like, if Taylor Swift gets on a plane at oh, 6.45 yeah. and right. then flies for 11 hours, can she make it to, you know, Atlanta, Georgia, but I don't know where the Super Bowl is, no. um, in, you know, X, Y, and Z hours. Like, it feels like a word problem from the SATs or something. Yeah. And I hate that. <laughs> Same. Um, I never took the SATs, you know? That's wild. Mm -hmm. The Midwest is so crazy. <laughs> Did you take the ACTs? Yeah. I took the SATs twice. Mm -hmm. And then I also had to take the PSATs. Oh, God, yeah, I know. And that's where mm -hmm. they prepare you to be a kind of person who takes the SATs. You yeah, find sure. out if you'll be good at the SATs. <laughs> I had to take a prep course for it, and then I dropped out of the prep uh, course because of 9-11, and then I never fulfilled my destiny of being great at the SATs. <laughs> and it's been downhill ever since. <laughs> God. Um, um, also, war... You guys, we got to stop uh, going to war. We got to stop it. <laughs> I know. One thing that I want to mention without going into any details, because we have said many times on this podcast that we don't do foreign policy, but if we're starting a war, it seems like something that we should mention. That's sort of um, domestic policy in a sense that you can vote for different right. people to not start wars. I feel like the point that I want to make without giving any details on the matter <laughs> is that I have been seeing like a lot of reporting and a lot of like supposed democratic hand wringing about this whole thing about like being dragged into another like yeah. large war in the Middle East, right? Whether it's because of whatever you think about what's going on over there right now or, you know, but it's like, oh, you know, Bibi Netanyahu, Netanyahu is dragging us into this right. or whatever. Nobody's dragging anybody into anything other than Joe Biden and whoever else dragging themselves into it. Yeah. So if you see a headline that it's like, it's really sad that such and such forced us to be bombing people in the Middle East. Just think to yourself for one split second. <laughs> you know how we all have that friend who like gives us, like feels like they're involved in our drama even though they're not, that we're, where they're like insisting on solving a problem you haven't asked them to solve. Like that's <laughs> right. what we are to the world. Like sometimes you're like, you know, 
I'm just a person with a minor with a minor beef with some person, and that's fine. We're just gonna yeah. live that way. And then you have that friend that's like, we gotta tell them or whatever. Oh like, yeah, <laughs> that's right. what we that's what we're being right now. Yeah, we sometimes we aren't we don't have to get dragged into anything because we can either mind our business or pursue other channels of being involved. <laughs> right. Those channels being not direct action of any sort. It just seems like we have forgotten about how sometimes that friend is not helpful. Right. We've also forgotten that you are supposed to be going to Congress to get approval to do these things. We forgot that <laughs> years ago. Yeah. Thank you, 9-11. That's, we haven't been, we have forgotten that to the extent that I don't, I did not see one single news story reference that, which you used to, around the era of 9-11, you would see the news be like, should we be going to Congress though? <laughs> right. But you don't even see them reference that anymore. Everyone has forgotten completely that you can't unilaterally go to war as the president. And um, Congress also seems yeah. to have forgotten that. I know. And so now we're just floating. And yeah. this would be an interesting Congress to try to go to war with because the party in control of the House is the party of war except for that they now think that they're the party of peace and pacifism <laughs> because the Democrats have become such war-hungry uh, uh, people. Like, it's just such a wild... It would be a wild time to get approval for a war right now. I oh, would love I them to all have to go on the record, though. Hello? We have an election coming up. I would love to know if our members of Congress are warmongering or not. And I would love for people to have to be thinking to themselves, would my constituents want to go to war? Yeah. Because the times that people did think that to themselves, we ended up with anti-war presidents. Because <laughs> the reason that Hillary Clinton is not the president right now is because of her hunger to go to war. Yeah. You know? I mean, Barack Obama became Truly. the president over not being as hungry for war as Hillary yeah, Clinton. Yeah, people forget that about people that election People forget about that election. And they forget that about, like, numerous elections that have occurred since where people lost so solely because of their support of the Iraq war. Yeah. Like that has happened in state and like not, you know, local federal races all over the place. Yeah. And we could put people in that position again if we tried. Yeah. If we asked them to tell us where they stand on going to war and every time we try to go to war, which has been a thousand times in the last <laughs> three months, so we'd have plenty of opportunities, we could get some answers. Yeah. We might be able to vote on that basis. I know. And anyway, um, in any case, we're, no one's voting anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> did you guys know that the South Carolina primary was this Saturday? Because I didn't. No. I, Brent told as me that. As in the Saturday, as in it happened. As in it has already happened. <laughs> we're recording on Sunday. We're That's talking right. about yesterday. <laughs> we're talking about yesterday when the South Carolina primary occurred. The two of us who painstakingly follow the primary process every single election year. Yeah. This is an elections podcast. <laughs> right. Hadn't heard about it. <laughs> like, what? What? I know. What? It was only the Democratic primary, right? Yes. Which is partly why no one heard about it. Correct. But I will remind everyone that this is the state that they wanted to make first in the nation. When the DNC started going on about how they were going to re, you know, change the primary calendar because you can't trust Iowa and you can't trust New Hampshire because who even lives in New Hampshire and Iowa can't operate a caucus to save their lives or whatever, it was South Carolina, a state that has never once voted for a Democratic president, that right. they wanted to make first in the nation. Yeah. And they... Said that on the basis of, I mean, part of it was because they had an advocate in James Clyburn, who yes. is always looking out for South Carolina. Uh -huh. um, but part of it was because they understandably wanted a state that had, you know, a, a community of black voters to, like, represent right. early in the primary. So it's not just a bunch of tiny white states that, you know, are voting. Yeah. But there are a lot of states with black voters in them. Yes. I met, like, I, I would, I can think of like a hundred off the top of my head that would be better even if they had to do one in the South. Yeah. Because obviously Georgia was the answer if they had to do a state in the South. Right. But I would also contend that maybe a state in the South isn't the best place to start the Democratic primary <laughs> process because so few states in the South vote for Democrats in the yeah. first place. Whatever. The point is that 
this is a state that was supposed to be the sort of like focus of democratic primary yeah. action. And, and no they one, didn't seem to care. They didn't care. <laughs> we didn't care. Nobody found out about anything. Joe Biden got 96% of the vote, but only yeah. 131,000 people voted. That's right. 4% of voters. Right. In 2020, which granted was, you know, contested, 540,000 people. Yeah. They couldn't even get half the turnout. No. Like, it's silliness. And to yeah. do it on, listen, I'm all for doing elections on a Saturday. I yeah, couldn't no, I be it's more pro. Idea. It's a great yeah. idea. And yeah. it's so weird because there are a lot of weird things like this in the South where we think about these as being states that have very restrictive voter policies. But there are actually a lot of really progressive voter policies that occur in the Voting Rights Act states because they were kind of yeah, being sure. monitored so carefully. <laughs> um, and this is one of them. We should do all our primaries on a Saturday. Yeah. But if we're going to do that, we should hear about them. <laughs> we should be able to find out about them. Right. So... Um, some exciting news for Brent, though, in this primary. Marianne Williamson, a resounding second place a over res- Dean Phillips. A resounding. She got 2. almost 1%? a half of a percentage more than Dean yeah, Phillips. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I'm you, sure she's going to soldier on. That's right. She'll have to. <laughs> Who else is there to contest Joe Biden if not Marianne Williamson? <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. But also speaking of elections, we went to a Senate candidate forum in California yes. yesterday and have thoughts. Yes. It was was, sponsored by the LGBT Center and Equality California and the Trans-Latina Coalition. Right. So it was all about LGBT issues. Yes. It was not, no one was asking anyone about thoughts on war. No. The people that were asking about thoughts on war were the very audible protesters outside. Throughout the entire event. God bless them. I mean, ceasefire protesters that would not quit. They, They drowned out the whole event. It was amazing. Yep. Um, And I feel like at one point they, and they... Ended up with someone leading the chant who sounded, oh, yeah. who, who well, they, was not I, as committed, and I, then they I, fixed it right away. Right. Well, and I got there as they um, were announcing themselves, and they mm. claimed, at least initially, that they were all, um, you know, LGBTQ or queer or, right. or, or whatever. And at one point, that was clear by who right. had the, the, the <laughs> megaphone, because it was, that was, it, was, that was the, it was like a, hey, hey, <laughs> ho, ho, which I deeply appreciated. It was... Um, so funny because it was in the middle of Adam Schiff, I believe, and he was blathering on in the most ugh. nonsensical. He literally got one fewer question than every other candidate because he couldn't stop talking. Oh, my God. He was doing yeah. like the ultimate politician filibustering the event thing. And so it was like the perfect moment for that to come <laughs> right. on. Right. I know. Um, but in any case, I have some hot takes from it. I have some thoughts from it. Sure. My first hot take, it, it's a. this is my hottest take from the event, given sure. the kind of event it was, which is... You should either practice saying your pronouns in a natural way, or you should just not say them at all. They were on a screen behind everyone. Right. Also, we know all their pronouns. And I get why in in an LGBT event, you would want to say your pronouns. That's like a thing. Yeah. I also get why I reacted the way that I did, because it seemed pandery and ridiculous, because it was as if none of them had ever heard of pronouns, and they had... It was I mean, so Barbara, Lee Barbara Lee is almost 80, and like she's not. She doesn't know about the pronouns. This, this, is, not she she's, this is not what she's. She is doing. someone who cares deeply about equality for LGBT people. Long history. Long history. Of being great on all of these issues. Yes, absolutely. She should not have to say her pronouns in an event because she sounded ridiculous. <laughs> First of all, she mixed up the order. Yeah, so she was Hershey. Right. <laughs> That's, and it also, just like with all of them, like when Adam Schiff did it, I was immediately like, stop pandering. Like, I, <laughs> yeah, he made no, me, I it just sort of like made me kind of angry. And, you know, I just, I feel like as a politician, 
it's already so awkward to give those to be at those kinds of events. I uh, hate yeah. when they do something so overtly pandery, and it's like they're not announcing their pronouns at other events. So I, it's not like part of their stump speech that they have to do this or whatever. <laughs> no. And like, if they're not going to do that, they don't need to do it for us either. <laughs> anyway, that's my hottest take. Sure. Um, but I did have some thoughts on the messaging as well. Yeah. At one point, I had to text Brent my thoughts because I was having oh, too yeah. many of them, and I needed to record them for posterity. But basically, so we should note, Barbara Lee, certainly the most principled of the candidates, certainly yeah. the longest history of doing the right thing, also came across as old and not really sure what was going on. She really did. And I feel like that was a major takeaway of mine because like I've not, you know, I obviously have thoughts about all of these people because yes. they've been around forever. They're all obviously from California. Right. Uh, like these They're are all people, currently these in are, Congress. These are all people that we have followed and certainly we've all followed Barbara Lee for some time because of her, you know, principled votes on Well, on because war she should and have she been given that, that open you know, Senate seat when Kamala retired. 100%. You know, but we have talked on this podcast about having hesitancy about voting for her because she is will be 78 by the time she's yeah. elected. So she'll be in her mid-80s by the time that her term is over. And we've just gone through this, right? Like, we are still sort of like, this is Dianne Feinstein's seat that we are filling, yeah. you know, after she died. So I, I, I just... And, and she, I have been telling people that, be like, look, she's old. And people are like, oh, well, she doesn't look old or this or that or the other or whatever. She officially sounded old. Yes. And like, look, she so, looks great. She I sounds say, old. <laughs> and sorry about that. Yeah. I, I, like, you know, th that's life. Sometimes yeah. when you're 78 years old, you've slowed down. You become confused by questions. You get lost in answers to things. And like that all happened for her yesterday. Yes. And that's unfortunate. Well, but like especially because she's definitely been oh, the most fierce would, advocate for LGBT communities. I would love, in, you know, so deeply to vote for her. Yeah. No, but it's like, also, well, there's there's that um, Renee Rapp interview uh, where they ask, where she says something like, "Oh, well, I'm ageist," and they're like, "You're ageist," and she's like, "Yes, deeply ageist." And I feel like <laughs> maybe now we can just, in the political realm, be ageist. I don't know. Like, I given what we just went through. And given how delusional old people are holding Congress captive right now yeah. at every level um, and held the Supreme Court captive to the extent that we literally lost our reproductive rights over old people not being able to let go. <laughs> like, I just I think it's OK to be a little ageist. Yeah. And that's not to say that Barbara Lee doesn't have a record that and, and certainly the most principled, the only both her and Adam Schiff mentioned Medicare for all. But in her case. She talked about acting, being an early supporter of it and actually like wanting to enact it. Yeah. In his case, it was sort of lip service and a longer list of things where he got confused and during a question about, you know, trans healthcare or something like that. Yeah. Um, but so certainly if we could find a candidate with Katie Porter's ideas and Barbara Lee's principles, that's yeah. the candidate we would really yeah. want to support. But for us, I think the race really became between Porter and Schiff after going to this candidate forum. I mean, oh, not yeah, in the not sense that we would ever vote for Adam Schiff, but just like that seems I like know. the only, like it, Barbara Lee making a principled vote in a situation where we could have an effective senator yeah. doesn't feel right yeah. in this circumstance. I was, I was surprised and disappointed that Katie Porter, uh, the question that got both Adam Schiff and Barbara Lee to Medicare for All was a setup question where they were basically like, tell us what you think about healthcare. Yes. And, and sh I know. She, she missed say it. it. <laughs> she missed and the I moment. And I was sort of like, is she going around like not telling people that she's supportive of that? Or like, did I she... I think that's exactly what she's did doing. Did she miss it? Did she think the room wasn't in favor? Did she... I like, think she's I, a person I, I from a purple district who does is not 
But I know she's in favor of it. No, I know she's in favor of it. And she's at least as in favor of it as Adam Schiff, who's definitely not in favor of it in a real sense. No. Um, But I think that she probably is more careful about advocating that when she's campaigning in California because of the district she comes from. That's my guess. I don't love that at all. No. Yeah. Um, I feel because I feel like on the one hand, one of her strengths is that she's good at talking to those sort of borderline communities. Uh, yes, politically borderline, uh, not personality borderline, <laughs> although maybe that too. Um, but, uh, and, you know, Schiff is certainly, if they end up in a two-person race, going to have to run to her right. So I'm sort of curious what she'll uh, He's do out in the world that. trying to claim that he's more progressive than she is. It, it's the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> he's literally a former blue dog. Well, the, and that's the other thing, And he's going to have an issue because of Gaza. Because he is... Well, she's a, sort of got the same issue, unfortunately. His but. is going to be so much bigger because he is going... Because he... He's Jewish, and so he's gonna have to ad- he's gonna have to advocate for you know supporting Israel in a way that she is gonna be able to kind of scurry out from under. They're both gonna have the same political issue, but in terms of how it is portrayed, it's gonna be different, I think. And his is going to he's he's like an old line Democrat on this issue, so yeah. he's gonna have that. Issue. I, I was disappointed to to that point that I felt like it was. And listen, this was. Uh, this was a candidate forum about LGBTQ issues, but Barbara Lee went last and I really thought that it was a missed opportunity on her part to be, to say something like at the beginning in her opening statement, they all got opening statements. Like I'd like to address what's going on outside. Yes, I know. You know what I mean? And I think there's even an equality portion to that also. You know what I mean? There's a, a, so I, I just felt like, she really could have done something that would have felt like big and and sort well, of. I but feel like, like again, her but I think only that, avenue here also is to do that kind of stuff. Is to be hundred percent so much more principled than everyone else because yes. she can afford to be. Her record backs it up. I think in the in yeah. their cases, their record really can't back up that kind of speech. A because it's a newer record, and B because they've made compromised choices. Barbara Lee very rarely makes that scale of compromise choice when the big symbolic votes happen. She's yeah. usually on the right side of them, so she she has the record to. To start saying shit. Yeah. But okay, wait, I still need to get to my main <laughs> my oh, main yes. observation, which this is all just a preamble to lead to a point that I haven't made yet, um, <laughs> which is that I think when asked about, you know, part of what was interesting about this forum was that they were being asked about really like specific issues in the LGBT community. Yeah, the questions were detailed and yes, sometimes too long, too long potentially. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and part of the reason no one had time to answer them is because- the... They were getting to all 17 questions that were contained within the one question. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, and it was like you had you had to give a full eight hours to the moderators in order to have them ask <laughs> right. the question in the first place. But this is the kind of format where I feel like it becomes really clear what the difference between Schiff and Porter is, where Adam Schiff talked about random symbolic messaging bills he had supported, about random future symbolic messaging bills he might be interested right. in. He talked exclusively about bills. And everything was just like, we could do a bill about this. We could do a bill about that. Even and Barbara I, Lee talked about bills. And even Barbara Lee talked about bills. And I feel like, sure, part of being in the legislature is bills. Yeah. But Katie Porter was really thinking about tactics beyond just bills and symbolic legislation. Yeah. She was thinking about you know, talk about oversight, obviously, about enforcement, yeah. about taking laws that we already have and ensuring they're being properly enforced, about the House doing its due diligence and providing oversight to federal agencies. Like, yeah. some of the things she was talking about seemed like they could actually be effective, which yeah. no one else managed to name a tactic that might be effective because we all know bills go nowhere. Yeah. They don't pass. 
they don't pass both chambers and even right. if they do the president vetoes them because he hates everyone like there's not we never get any bills passed so like don't unless it's a war i'm sure we could get a war bill yeah. passed but like you know unless it's maybe ukraine funding like we don't get bills passed specifically bills that deal with very specific communities that you know people on the far right have an incentive to symbolically vote against right. so you know they were asked about these con- this conservative craziness and on school boards where they're like trying to out students and you know all that oh, that yeah. kind of stuff and like she was talking about, okay, well, as your senator, I would have an obligation to down-ballot candidates. I would have to go to those school boards with them. I, like, I, would, I would see myself in the role of not just legislating as your senator, but also providing leadership and support to California Democrats more broadly. You know, she talked about door knocking. She talked about some of the campaign tactics that help shift minds on these sorts of issues. Yeah. And I feel like Schiff was literally just making glib talking points about yeah. how, you know, he could theoretically have a bill about... It's like, yeah, you could theoretically propose a bill about right. anything. That's not yeah. what solves these yeah. problems, though. Yeah. Well, what I meant to say, actually, when you were talking about how, how all he did was talk about this and that and the other, and I said even Barbara Lee did yeah. that, she was actually gave more specifics. Because yes. she talked about, like, specific earmarks that she had gotten to like right. you know health centers and things like that and like you know like i feel like even through her sometimes otherwise ran rambly yeah. remarks that she gave i felt like was even gave more specifics than shift yeah. well and shift talked a little bit about earmarks he'd gotten for the lgbt center we were in which was like this fancy project that occurred around here where it was like a big deal when it opened and it was very expensive and blah 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 and it was yeah. like a brand new building and you know whatever and it's great facility yeah. that's not to yeah. um say it's not but i feel like he was sort of pandering so directly to the audience that he failed to mention like what you can what you can do for the community more broadly than the like west hollywood and hollywood lgbt community yeah and i feel like barbara lee did a good example like she talked about working with maxine water she talked about like stuff she had done for the state and stuff like that so i think even her specifics were like a little bit stronger but also I just want to hear more about what a senator is empowered to do, because I think one of the things that we don't get the feeling of in California is that ha- is that we have a senator <laughs> in the first, like that we have any Senate representation. You know, we're so underrepresented in that body. Yeah. And so I really appreciated Katie Porter's thoughts about like, okay, what is a senator actually empowered to do? What what could what were we empowered to do in the House? But also, how could I take that? and empower the Senate to do the same thing because obviously you're going to be underrepresented there. And yeah. that it's a it's a frustrating position because of that. We, I think, need someone who can think about how to be effective instead of just how to like seem effective. Yeah. Because remember when Kamala Harris had like the most progressive voting record in the Senate? And when you I look know, at what right? the record was, I was like, well, they don't vote on anything in the Senate. <laughs> right. So like, what does that even mean? Yeah. And I feel like Katie Porter kind of addressed that like there are things you can do beyond having a progressive voting record. Yes, and I that, agree. I thought it was interesting. Yeah. I don't know and how you message that to a larger population. I know. It didn't. It landed on me because I was looking for it, but I don't right. think it landed to the audience who were just trying to glad hand a bunch of fancy people. Yeah, like yeah, I do think that that election is going to be one where listen, that is a primary where I was sort of looking forward to voting for some random you know peace and freedom <laughs> candidate <Maybe. laughs> or you know some socialist candidate or whatever it is. Right. And the polling on that now is very close with Schiff being at, like, the latest that I saw was, like, Schiff at 25% and then Porter at 15% and then Garvey, who's a Republican, at 15%. Yeah. So I feel like— we got to get Porter over the Garvey. I was going to say, I feel like that might be an election where as it gets closer to the actual vote, you should maybe be looking at polls just to be 
voting strategically a little yeah. bit just based on the way that our stupid jungle primaries are, which is annoying to me oh, because I don't really particularly I'm not desperate to vote for any of the three of right. them. <laughs> I don't disagree with you that I feel like Porter is the best option of the three. Right. Um, but I feel like in this in a primary, I was just sort of ready to be like, fuck everybody. Sure. Because that's sort of well, where I'm at like, in life right now. And that's also, um, I think, something that we have often had to do in gubernatorial races and things like that. Just because yeah. there's been one juggernaut candidate, right. like a Gavin Newsom. And there's not and, this time. It would be nice to yeah. have, like, if faced with... All of the people who are running for Senate right now, right. like clearly you would like Katie Porter to be the senator. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And when I I feel like specifically for the Senate, I'm OK with a strategic vote because the role of senator is so specifically ineffective. Like I, I well, feel yeah. like I want someone who's actually thinking about how to use that seat. And that isn't the same as being the governor or being my congressperson or whatever, where like I feel like the Senate, it's like a high profile role where it's easy to get nothing done. Sure. And so like I feel like I'm almost looking for something different than just a principled stance in that race, weirdly. Um, and uh, by the way, I don't think that any of these people have such principled stances that I'm necessarily <laughs> eager to vote for their principled stances. Yeah, I, sure. Of the three of them, Barbara Lee has the most principled stances. Sure. But also the reason I'm thinking... Porter is because I want someone who will be effective. And I'm just sick of having senators that don't accomplish it, who we have to call them and be put on hold in order to let them know how to vote on obvious things. And they're not even thinking about what they can do beyond those. And if they are doing things beyond making those votes, we're not finding out about them. Right. They're not even effectively messaging. Right. Like, do we know what any of our senators are up to right now? No. I haven't heard a word I know, from when they reminded us at some point yesterday that we currently have the first, like, out queer right. senator and we, and we or something. Right, and we were like, oh, right. right. Lafonso Butler. Right, she's our senator. <laughs> Remember right her? Like, no. Haven't heard a word from her. No. Like, I haven't I haven't heard a word from any of those fools. No. So, I mean, I would be interested to have someone who you could hear a word from. Yeah. That might be fun. Anyway, let's talk about the border. <laughs> sure. We have one. Uh, uh, we, yeah, we, do, we have two. We have two. And <laughs> they that. might be worse than they used to be <laughs> soon. So there's this border deal, which we talked about last week, I think. Yeah, we um, They've been, you know... Conservative politicians have been all over the media, and I'm including Kristen Cinema in that list, um, <laughs> talking about what's going on with the vote on that border deal. Because that's the border deal where they're going to, like, close down the border every five seconds. Yeah, Biden's super excited but to close down the border. Super excited. Can't wait to close, yeah. close down the border. Just let me do it. Right. It's just I, it's the moment that passes, the bo that border is closed. Uh -huh. um, Lindsey Graham was talking about how they're probably not going to vote on it before the next recess, which is February 12th to 23rd. So I think he was responding to the pressure probably from the Biden administration to get the deal done. Yeah. Um, and uh, well, the only pressure that Lindsey Graham cares about is the pressure from Donald Trump. Well, correct. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I feel like there's pressure coming from both sides to get this deal done quickly, though, in a way that I'm not comfortable with. <laughs> um, yeah. But anyway, Kristen Cinema weirdly was on, I think, Face the Nation or whatever. They don't usually send her out for interviews because she's got no constituency and she sucks. Right. Um, and so, but she's helping negotiate this deal. And she reiterated that part of this plan is to shut down the border at every turn. She was talking about sort of what's going to be in it. Uh -huh. She said one of the proposals they're considering now includes um, ending catch and release, which is basically where they let 
migrants in without documents and then let them be here until their cases play out in court. They want instead put everyone in short-term detention centers because that's super oh, fun. Oh, cool. That's right. going to be super fun. But one of the things— But also, like, I, I need to say something about that because yes. that's literally what got Democrats probably more mad yep. than literally anything that Donald yep. Trump did in his entire four years. Couldn't be were, right. Were those detention centers. That's right. Which, by the way, we're still putting people in. We're it's still it's putting not people, as if yeah, we're not worry. doing that anyway. Don't worry but about I mean, detention like, centers. They're I, doing I just, great. It's so—I I feel like that— I'm constantly reminding people of this, like, around this whole border situation. It's just sort of like, this would be considered under Donald Trump racist, xenophobic, uh, like, it's just... It's political suicide because the imagery that comes out of these detention centers is horrifying. Yeah. It's so easy. And once you become responsible for it, you end up owning that imagery. Uh, The last uh, thing that we want is to own imagery of... Migrants who've already been through enough shit stuck in horrifying detention centers where they're, you know, being harassed by guards and they're being essentially treated like criminals. And, you know, like that's nobody's going to want that. Right. That's not going to be a thing. And then also the the other thing that they keep going on. And if anyone asks, asks to, says to you that this is a reasonable policy because it sounds reasonable with words, <laughs> I need you to like think to yourself for a moment. They're talking about for families and other people they couldn't put in these detention centers, they would do a limited monitored release, but then they would have a limited time to like prove that they qualify for asylum. I want you to think about what a person who is seeking asylum would have to offer as proof that they qualify. I know. Where are they getting this proof? What kind of proof are we talking about? A receipt from the, you know... The drug cartels that are trying right? to kill their family, right? Like, Dear, th- are they supposed to you know, bring a note with Mr. them? Mr. Espinoza, <laughs> like, we will kill your entire family. Please show this at, pro- at U.S. border for proof of entry. Like, what, are, what is the proof that they're going to be able to offer? If you, have, if you are seeking asylum, you don't have anything. You certainly don't have Notably. proof. Notably, you have nothing. Like, I think the idea that people will be able to provide some sort of paperwork that, like, proves their need for safety is so short-sighted and also cruel because yeah. it's impossible. It's an impossible barrier to reach. Well, that that's, the, that's not, the point. Which is the, the point. Po- the point is the barrier exactly. because then you just turn them back so around. So when you hear that policy coming from the mouth of a Democrat or a Republican, I yeah. need you to think to yourself, if I were seeking asylum, say Donald Trump's the president again, the January 6thers have won, I'm LGBT or something, and I need to leave, whatever it is. What When you get to the Canadian border, what paperwork are you going to have to prove all this? Yeah. None of it. Like, like don't, or when you get to the Mexican border, because that's where you're going to go. Because <laughs> the Canadian border is not going to, they're not going to want you. But when, when you, when you start moving south, what is the paperwork you're going to have to offer as proof <sighs> that you are in need of asylum? You're not going to have that. No. And after you have been trekking all over Mexico with your kids or whatever, trying to just get to the border in the first place, where are you keeping that safe? Like, <sighs> are you going to have, like, a valid passport and three forms of ID and, like, a paper that says that your family was going to be murdered? And, like, like, I, it's so insane to me because this is, like, such a sneaky talking point. Because, of course, it for sounds sure. very reasonable oh, yeah, to be sure. asking people for proof yeah, that they require asylum. Yeah, right. We can't just be letting anyone into the country. But the thing is, we can just be letting anyone into the country. <laughs> you know, we, like... We have, that's what we do, That's what generally. we do, generally. <laughs> and so I feel like that's not really the question here. Yeah. The, the question no, is about 
creating a barrier that's insurmountable for yeah. asylum seekers. And then on top of that, they're going to just be closing down the border at random. I know. It's so wild because I feel like it's an interesting bill in the sense that, like, I feel like both Democrats and Republicans, by participating in trying to get this bill passed, have put themselves in weird positions. Yes. Like, usually, like, I could be like, oh, the Democrats, even if I disagree with them, like, really, like, pulled one over on the Republicans right. or vice versa or something here. But I feel like everybody just played themselves. I think totally. <laughs> because it's like the Democrats played themselves by like propping up a bill that is like quite cruel. literally cruel and and that their and, voters and notably right. don't like right and policies Repu- their voters right. notably don't support and Republicans have now played themselves in the sense that like they are have been out for years talking about the emergency at the border and now there's a bill and they can't vote for it <laughs> it's too ridiculous <laughs> so it's just like everybody is sort of like no wonder it's no wonder they're not voting on it before no. the next recess you guys <laughs> if we've learned anything from every gang of every number. It's that immigration is not a solvable problem, and you shouldn't bother. I know. Just let chaos reign. <laughs> There's nothing else you can do. The gang of 14 couldn't solve this. The gang of 8 couldn't solve this. The gang of 6 couldn't solve this. You no- know who can solve it, though, Lila? Chris and Cinema? No. <laughs> God's Army. Oh, God's Army's going to solve it. I forgot about God's Army. Yeah. Thank God they're there. For I know. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit, about how all of the, you know, some of the National Guard people were traveling, but also just, like... You know, people in their RVs are also right. going down there now. And they're God's army or, you know, whatever they're calling themselves or whatever. But they've they've all gotten down there. There was, like, some big rally there, like, at the border the other yeah. day. And the only reason I mentioned this is because I saw some clip from Fox News where they were, like, interviewing somebody who had gone down there. And they were like, anything eye-opening down here? And the woman was like, it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> I mean, literally, these people who have never seen a black or brown person in right. their life, by the way, who have traveled from Idaho, like, come down there, and I think that they thought they were going to see, like, literally, like, marauding Mexican right. zombies, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, crossing the border, just, like, ripping across barbed wire right. and like, just, like, coming up. Machetes, like, coming like <laughs> <laughs> And it's like, just some, it's just not what's... some people trying to get their families to safety. As it turns out, that's not what's happening Just regular old people, just your average everyday people, just right there. I know. Just trying trying their best. Oh, well, and that's, I mean, you hear that all the time because of the way that conservative media is portraying oh, yeah. the migrant the crisis. The emergency at the border. Nobody fucking knows what's going I on down there. I had someone in LA talk to me about it, and I was like, you know we live at the border. <laughs> the, this thing you're imagining, it's here. It's like, like, are you still safe in your home? I think it's okay. Yeah. Like, sure, we have a housing crisis in L.A. I won't be the first to admit that. Sure. It's not because of fucking migrants, though. <laughs> it's because of greedy developers. Like, get out of here. You already live in a place that used to be Mexico. So just, like, be fine. Right. But, yeah, I, there's, there's this kind of, like, weird... Um, I think, sense that the problem is somewhere else, but it is bad over there. Right. And you hear this a lot. I mean, it's similar to the rhetoric you hear about cities from conservative media, where it's like, sure. they're burning. Oh, yeah, for you know, sure. And you, it's like when I went to Chicago and everyone was like, see, the burning Chicago, as I look at a beautiful, re- right. newly redone park, and I was like, no, I, Chicago, was, lovely I place. did not think that the city of Chicago was burning. I was able to see through that because I'm from New York. <laughs> right, yeah. So I know. But yeah. like, I get why you would have a chip on your shoulder about that after mm-hmm. the media is reporting that your city is like a crime-infested, you know, burning hellhole. Right, hellhole, right, yeah. And it's like, no, I mean, there's... Certainly post-pandemic, there are areas of most major cities that are facing issues with their, you know, commercial districts. Sure. Because what are you going to do with them? Right. You know, San Francisco notably is having an issue with their commercial district. Yeah. People are still just taking sunny walks in San well, Francisco, though. I was going to say, San Francisco is beautiful. It's beautiful. Like, just know where you're at. You Like, don't go for a beautiful walk in the Tenderloin. You know what no, I mean? Exactly. It's just like, just... Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, I think this the rhetoric is similar where it's like, yeah, Texas totally. is being overrun oh by migrants who are right. roaming around just 
looking at things. Right. And, it's and like, that's coming from Greg Abbott, a person who is notably untrustworthy. <laughs> I, so he's, a, he's a human liar. No. <laughs> so in any case, um, use your critical thinking skills. Don't watch Fox News. That's um, right. And let's welcome Ben onto the podcast to talk a little bit about these Trump legal cases that we have been too confused and annoyed to keep up with. Can't wait. Hey, Ben, welcome back to the podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're excited to have you because, you know, we have not talked about a lot of these Trump court cases in a while. And truth be told, we have sort of lost track of some of them. So we're excited to have you here and get into, you know, the details of them and where they stand. But I think before we get into each individual case, it would be great if we could have a brief overview that doesn't have to be super detailed of just the cases that are in play and sort of basically where they're at. Sure. Yeah, no, it's understandable that one could lose track. He's in like a heap of legal trouble, for sure. So and this this will like, likely be an incomplete list. But at a minimum, you've got the classified documents case in Florida. That's in federal court. That's Judge Eileen Cannon. That's documents in the shower the, at Mar-a-Lago. Right. The best photographic case. Right. Here and after the shower case. Uh, <laughs> You've got the federal case in D.C., the January 6th case. That's before Judge Tanya Chutkin. You've got the January 6th case in Georgia. That's in state court. Um, I guess you've got the, haven't heard about this one in a while, but the business records, Stormy Daniels cover-up criminal case in New York. Deep cut. Um, deep cut and of course you've got the uh civil fraud case in new york although that seems to be wrapping up uh and then i think what's making it complicated is that you've got the january the federal case about january 6th is actually on hold right now and it's potentially going to be affected by two appeals that are in play one of those is trump claiming that he has presidential immunity that basically makes him immune from the criminal prosecution in dc and then you've got a second appeal that is going to the Supreme Court about the meaning of obstruction of an official proceeding, which is one of the crimes that Trump is charged with in the D.C. case and how that case is decided could affect how that case goes. So that's at least six or seven cases. And then there's an additional case that isn't uh, that is a little bit different from those in, 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 uh, in kind, which is all these cases about whether. Uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment bars Trump from being on the presidential ballot at all. Right. That's sort of in response to the, like, Colorado kicking him off the ballot and, and that happening in other places. Right. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. Ooh. Let's start with that case. Can you... Okay. Ex that was one of the newer cases. That's a splashier case on the, on the docket. Um, sure is. Can you talk us through a little bit about what, what that case is about and kind of what is at stake in that case. And then we'll just kind of take the rest of the cases one by one from there. Sure. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, the 14th Amendment, uh, which was adopted right after the Civil War and during Reconstruction, has this provision, and I'll just, I'll read it. Basically, I'll read the text to start. Um, it says, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president, or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States, or any state, who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress, or as an officer of the United States, 
or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection and a series of other things. In other words, no person can hold any of these offices if when they were previously holding office and they took an oath to the constitution, they engaged in an insurrection. So what is started in Colorado and there was a case about that basically said, hey, uh, Donald Trump is disqualified by this provision of the Constitution because he held an office of the United States, namely president. He obviously took an oath to uphold the Constitution while he was in office. And his conduct uh, leading up to and on January 6th constituted an insurrection for this pretty straightforward reason of his literal goal was to sort of disrupt the lawful counting of votes and to disrupt the kind of lawful processing of an election and of the you know, orderly transition of power in government. So he's not, uh, you know, uh, eligible to run for president. No, no different than if he were 34 years old and, and, and didn't make the, you have to be 35 requirement. Right. And the Colorado Supreme Court wrote an extremely thorough opinion and agreed and said, yeah, he, he did engage in insurrection. He is, you know, covered by this clause. And so he can't be on the ballot. Uh, and then you had something similar happen in Maine although it was procedurally different, where the Maine Secretary of State, who under Maine law is the, the official who decides whether you can be on the ballot, also said, Trump engaged in insurrection, he's covered by this clause, he can't be on the ballot. So that's the dispute you have going up to the Supreme Court, which will you know rule at a federal level for everybody, uh, kind of what this what this piece of the 14th Amendment means and whether it means Trump can be, uh, whether it means that uh, states uh, can can force him off the ballot, or I guess have to force him off the ballot. Is this case then deciding whether or not what he did constitutes uh, uh, committing an act of insurrection? Or are they just deciding whether somebody who theoretically did commit an act of insurrection can legally be kept off the ballot by a state authority? Because are we going to have to, is this like a, like a, glass onion kind of situation where we're going to have to like wait for another thing to decide if he committed the act of insurrection. But theoretically, if he did, then he could be kicked off the ballot and that could take until 2045 to figure out at which point he's been the president for 45 years or whatever, you know. <laughs> right. Right. No. The, well, the, so you've, you've hit on exactly the right question, which is how will the Supreme Court decide this case? And the Supreme Court has a lot of flexibility when it takes the case and how to decide it and often looks for the sort of uh, you know, e easier, by easy, I don't mean easy, the questions are easy, but like the less uh, jolty to the system way out. Now, I think it's important to note, the Colorado Supreme Court decided all those questions. They said, this is the meaning of this clause, and Trump engaged in insurrection, and therefore he can't be on the ballot in Colorado. So all of those questions are before the US Supreme Court, if they want to get there. Um, and, and, and the other thing to be like clear about is that for uh, Trump to lose, uh, for Trump, you know, for the Supreme Court to hold that Trump can't be on the ballot, like that side of the art, you know, that side of the argument has to run the table. They have to get, yes, it was an insurrection. Yes, it applies in this case, you know, and there are a number of roadblocks that the Trump team is raising. Uh, and if the Supreme Court decides to take any one of those off ramps, uh, Trump will be on the ballot. Uh, and, and some of them are pretty interesting. Like, for example, you know, there are people who are saying, um, sure, maybe it was an insurrection, but is this, uh, is this provision 
quote unquote, self-executing, meaning sure, the 14th Amendment says no one who having engaged in insurrection, uh, you know, can run again. But did Congress have to sort of pass a law to make that actually work? Because if they didn't, how do we know how to test what an insurrection is and how do we know how it all works? So there's going to be lots of debate about how it works. And that could be an off ramp for the Supreme Court to say, yeah, no, we're not we're not going to hold that he's ineligible because there's just, you know, plenty of ambiguity here. Sure. Is there a state's rights argument here where the the federal court system can force a state to I mean, because it sounds like Colorado and Maine had different processes for determining the validity of, you know, whoever's on the or the, the determining whether or not Trump can be on the ballot. Obviously, in Maine, it was just an official's choice in Colorado. The court upheld it. But like, is there going to be are there going to be repercussions at the state level? Um, because this is kind of in some ways also a state's rights conversation, I guess, if you interpret it that way or want to, you know, want to interpret it that way, especially because of the electoral yeah, college, I, because of the way we vote for president, you know? Right. You're exactly right. Elections really are run. Even federal elections for president are really run by the states. You have sort of 50 or 50, you know, however we're up to when we count certain territories and, you know, like individual elections. Now, I think you'll probably see something like what you're saying, Lila, phrased as like a due process argument. So if you're Trump, you say, hey, I have to have, you know, you're depriving me of, of like some sort of expressive right to run for president as a politician, and you're depriving my supporters of the right to vote for me. Um, you know, that's anti-democratic. And of course, the easy response is, well, right, this is an anti-democratic, this is an intentionally you know, limitation on democracy provision, just like the provision that says you have to be 35 years old and you have to be a natural born citizen. Like there are limits on who can run for president. There's nothing strange about that. And don't let the sort of, this is anti-democratic crowd, like win that argument because it's a bad one. But he might also make sort of a due process argument and say, well, how exactly are we testing that I committed an insurrection and that I'm, you know, ineligible for this? There hasn't been a criminal trial that found me guilty of insurrection. In Colorado, you had, you know, a bunch of Supreme Court justices sort of decide that I committed an insurrection. And in Maine, you have this single official decide that there was an insurrection. So what's the right process and how can this possibly be fair? Now, I don't know the right answer to that. I, again, I keep going back to the requirement that you be 35 years old. If someone who was 34 and a half, you know, tried to get on the ballot, I suppose what would happen is that, Lila, to your state's rights point, each state probably has a process for sort of testing the various eligibility requirements and it probably involves going to the like relevant officer or official and showing them your id right and then right. if you think they misread it or they you know mistakenly keep you off the ballot there's going to be some appellate process some review um and so it doesn't seem so wild to me that each state might have a slightly different process but that might be something that gives the supreme court some pause for sure is there is there a world where the Supreme Court isn't the one who ultimately decides whether he did an insurrection or not? Or is this also the type of thing I'm curious, is this the fact that he wasn't officially impeached for such a thing? Is that something that could come back to bite everyone because that would have been the actual decider on whether he'd insurrectioned or not? Insurrected. Um, I, I, I'm just I'm just curious, like how like, you know to the conversation that we've just been having, like what, how does that get decided if it ever gets decided? I mean, is there a word where the Supreme Court is like, nobody will ever know whether he did an insurrection or not? <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
I think that is a possibility. I would, I would say, I would think, uh, at least as a formal philosophical matter, I would separate an impeachment from, from this scenario. So an impeachment says, you know, for high crimes and misdemeanors, this intentionally vague phrase, you know, the legislature can decide to kick the president out of office. And it can be any reason they want that they define as high crimes and misdemeanors, but it requires this level of voting and this level of, you know, an impeachment trial and a conviction. This provision of the 14th Amendment is different. It says no person who has done this thing can run for president or can run for an office of the United States. I should be clear, right? That is different. That's not saying if the Senate goes through this, you know, Byzantine procedure and convicts you and finds that you are, you know, removable and that you should be impeached. This is, you just can't do it. Same as if you were 34 years old. And so I think you should think of them differently. Nevertheless, though, what the Supreme Court could say is, no, you know, Congress has to define what it means to uh, have committed an insurrection, because if they don't, then you're just going to have, you know, one year, you know, the very liberal main secretary of state, I'm making that up, I don't, I don't actually know much about the main search, is going to decide to remove uh, Trump for having committed an insurrection. And in four years, you know, a very conservative secretary of state in Texas is going to prevent the Democrat from running. And so, no, of course, we need some sort of procedures. And in the absence of those, we are not willing to find as a matter of federal law that Trump committed an insurrection. I think there's a lot of off ramps. Um, I also think that one really worth looking out for one that I'm actually not sure if I'm persuaded by is that the language of the amendment is a little weird, right? It says, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or an elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military under the United States. Someone's going to argue that this does not talk about the president. I've heard that. You know, at, which sounds it sounds like bonkers, drunk twenty but... five year olds writing the Constitution, just partying their brains out. <laughs> they just forgot. Just they forgot to any add random that. List a really long list, and they were like, yeah. "Oh, damn." <laughs> well, and the obvious answer will be clearly any office, yeah. civil or military, under the United States encounters it encompasses president. But the answer to that would be that's a pretty funny way to refer to the president as like the fourth thing it's in one a of the list guy. covering any other office. After you talk about senators and representatives and electors, seems like you wouldn't hide it like fourth in the list. You know, there is this sort of canon of interpretation that you don't hide elephants in mouse holes. And I think that's like not a frivolous argument. Is it possible that if they do rule that Trump is allowed to be held off the ballot in these states, that there are a number of other elected officials who also participated in January 6th? I'm thinking of people like Josh Hawley. Um, who could also be taken down by this law? Like, does this end up, does an interpretation that allows for him to be removed from the ballot go, you know, move downwind to all of the other people who were also involved? It's a great point. Maybe. I would say maybe I would doubt in Congress. And here's here's why. I, I actually think like, let, let, let's play out one of the possible arguments for that Trump might make for this wasn't an insurrection at all is, look, I legitimately believe the election was stolen for me. And you know, I pursued every remedy I could. I think the answer to that would be, well, no, you pursued more than every remedy you could. First, you pursued various court remedies. You lost all of those. And then having, you know, received the official rulings of the various institutions that decide these things, you then like sick to violent mob on the, on the Congress. <laughs> if you're Josh Hawley, you 
you voted, you know, in favor of the kind of attempt to overthrow, but like that was sort of within the bounds of your official duties. And I think right. for most of the people in Congress, they may have taken some like quite dishonorable votes um, to say the least. But I think that was at least sort of pulling the levers of the institution in the way that it's at least theoretically designed to work, not sort of sending a fraudulent set of electors, sending a mob, you know, through the front door. So I think, yes, it could maybe, but I'm thinking more of types like, you know, the, your, your John Eastman's and your, you know, your Rudy's and stuff. Finally, a way to keep Rudy Giuliani out of, we don't have to worry about keeping him out of elected office, actually. He'll never get elected. I don't think so. Although gosh, he, he did previously take an oath uh, as a member, as, a mayor. as an executive officer <laughs> of a state, right? You'd have yeah. to say he did. He was the America's mayor. Yeah. Okay. That's right. <laughs> Thankfully, there is no oath for being America's mayor, and that's a fake job that can only be bestowed upon you by Oprah. So <laughs> anyway, let's move on to the immunity case. Um, this case is one of the cases that's having repercussions for other cases, right? And this is a case that Trump brought himself, right, to try to head off uh, these other cases. Am I right about that? Tell us about it. Tell us that's, what it is. Explain it. Yeah, that's basically right. It's not a new case. It's actually an argument he's raising in his D.C. January 6th criminal case. So the theory goes, uh, you know, the president needs to enjoy the president enjoys absolute immunity from criminal uh, prosecution for basically acts committed while in office as the president. It's a very, very broad argument. And I think it's a pretty bad argument. We can get into why. Uh, but basically, he's raising in that case, the, the Judge Chutkin case, the Jack Smith case in DC, this case should be dismissed. And the reason is I'm immune from being from being uh, uh, prosecuted for these. The important thing aside from the merits of the argument to sort of think about in this case is that the way uh, lawyers and courts think about immunity arguments is that it's not just a reason why you should win, but if you are entitled to immunity, it's a reason why you shouldn't even be tried. Immunity is sort of a protection, not just from losing, but from the burden of having to undergo a trial. And so because of that, if there is sort of a debatable immunity point, the trial judge is supposed to put everything on hold because otherwise, if they were to go ahead while that appeal was going and say Trump wins the appeal, he would have been denied kind of the benefit of that immunity because he would have had to stand trial. So they put it on pause. It goes up through the appellate process. And then if the appellate courts decide, no, you're not immune, then the trials can resume. So what this is, is a big scheduling problem, basically a big, uh, it's put a wrench in the gears. And I think if we look, think back to the end of December and early January, the DC circuit, uh, which is the appellate court that is the first court to review this immunity claim, signaled like it was going to move really fast. I mean, it put like a briefing schedule over Christmas and over New Year's. It scheduled an argument for January 9th, but now it's February 4th and or I whatever it was, day it is for the people. Yeah, I think it was on the actual docket for like March 4th, I believe. The trial was on the docket for March 4th. The right. appeal was was heard on January 9th. Oh, the appeal. Sorry, I the think appeal. most See, court watchers thought it would be decided in a few days. And, and here we are three or four weeks later. Interesting. What could be the reason that that's not moving as quick as we think? Yeah. Uh, I mean, look, I want to be, it's a complicated case. It is a sure. complicated issue. These judges have to get it right. I, I don't think there's a ton of suspense about the outcome. I think they're going to find that Trump is not entitled to the broad range of immunity that he is seeking. Um, 
but there could be disagreements among the three judge uh, panel that heard the case over exactly how to decide it. And they have to write an opinion that, you know, either two or three of them have to get behind. And if only two of them agree, then the third judge will write, you know, a a concurrence or a dissent. A concurrence would be like, I agree with the outcome, but I think the reasons should be a little different. Um, It's worth noting that I think it's three judges and two of them are fairly uh, more recent Democratic president, uh, appointed by Democratic presidents. And the third is, I believe, a George H.W. Bush appointee who's been on the bench for a while. She's a good judge, Karen Henderson, uh, but she's liable to be a little bit more conservative. She's also, as the senior judge on the panel, is the one who, if she's in the majority, would decide who writes the opinion and so has some ability to control the timing. So, you know, I don't have any like tea leaves or any info of anything, but um, clearly there's just not immediate agreement on exactly what to say, or it's just taking time to write it. And this ends up at the Supreme Court too, probably, regardless of what this ruling is, yes? I think so. There, there have I've heard some chatter that some people think if the if the court if the D.C. Circuit writes a very sort of straightforward bulletproof like no, of course there's no blanket immunity, that there's a chance that the Supreme Court wouldn't take it. They have enough hot button issues around Trump this term, but I don't. My my view is that they have to take it. I think if I think if a former I think there's sort of a comedy comedy uh separation of powers <laughs> thing where if a former and some comedy <laughs> where if a former president says you know i'd like you to review my immunity claim i think the supreme oh, court weren't they correct me if i'm wrong but weren't they initially asked by jack smith to like weigh on weigh in on this themselves initially yes this was a pretty interesting turn of events so because of the time pressure jack smith actually having uh after so the procedure was pretty convoluted so jack smith won in district court tanya chuck and said no you're not entitled to this much immunity trump then appealed to the dc circuit and jack smith then responded by asking the supreme court to jump in line in front of the dc circuit and say look time is of the essence here this is a key question it's for sure going to the supreme court so supreme court will you please jump in and grant what's called certiorari before judgment certiorari means they're taking the case before judgment, meaning before the judgment of the Court of Appeals, will you jump in and just decide it right away? The court agreed to hear briefs on that question on a very fast schedule, but then ultimately decided not to take the case. And I think, you know, there's no use reading tea leaves into that either. You know, obviously, worst case would be, oh, they just want to drag it out. But I I think it's more likely that this is a tough question and they want the benefit of the appellate uh, opinion. Can I ask a potentially dumb question in relation to that point, which is, is this a real argument? (laughs) Like this seems so (laughs) patently insane to me as, and listen, this is a, this to me reads as like a Trump style legal maneuver. Like he, he's a desperate legal maneuverer if ever there was one, but I mean, (laughs) we're not talking about like, you know, protecting the president from, you know, having, um, legal, you know, for giving him some sort of legal indemnity for like a military action or like some kind of thing, which is, I assume what this law is meant to protect is like, okay, you have the power to essentially like murder citizens as the president because you control vast weaponry and, you know, the have the ability to commit violent actions everywhere. So like as president, you can't be like tried by everyone personally for doing those things. But this seems like such a ridiculous interpretation of this law to me. Is this real <laughs> no i mean tldr no good question right. um I, 
I think it's worth starting where you did, Lila, because I don't want it to be just knee-jerk, like, no, you know, Trump said it and it has to be wrong. There are good reasons why presidents should have some measure of immunity, right? As you said, they control the military. If they make an absolutely, like, bad military decision and it kills some people, or even just a bad policy decision, they their agency draws the line for, you know, when to issue a social security check and this group of people They reject healthcare proposals and- that... <laughs> Right. Could provide no, exactly. healthcare to and millions. Like, yeah, they have real effects on people's lives. And I think we think it would be weird and bad if when people with just that, the, that amount of leverage and power uh, by dint of their position, like it would be weird to hold them criminally liable for sort of the outcomes of those decisions. Nobody would run for those offices. We wouldn't be able to do it. Um, but no, this is a claim that goes way beyond that. This is basically Trump saying anything I did while I was in office as president, I can't be held criminally liable for. And remember, He's not doing these things. I mean, I think this will be the debate, but in my view, he didn't do any of these things as President Trump. He did right. them as candidate Trump. Right. He did them as a candidate for president uh, who had lost. Right. And in fact, I think the better read is he took advantage of the fact that he was a candidate who was also president and had these levers of power that he could abuse. Uh, and so, no, it's but it, it's not a good argument, and it and it shouldn't be accepted. I also think it's it, we would all be remiss if we didn't put it out. It's also a bad faith argument, right? It, it, you know, yeah. political junkies like yourselves may remember that when after January sixth, Trump was impeached, and what many Republican senators said to be able to live with themselves for not uh, voting to convict was. You know, well, the criminal process will take care of this, and you know <laughs> right. we shouldn't be impeaching him because by now he's left office. Biden's already been inaugurated. Right. I don't even know if you can convict a former president under an impeachment, so we right. should let the criminal process take care of it. Well, here we are at the criminal process, and <laughs> right. Trump's lawyers are arguing, "Well, wait, wait, wait. he can't be criminally <laughs> prosecuted. The remedy is impeachment." Right. So, and and all of those Republicans are now also talking about judicial overreach. Of right. course. Yeah. yeah. No, of course. <laughs> well, you know, consistency is the hobgoblin of lesser minds. I think someone else said. So you let's know, not for, be for as much of a, to... I, I will say for as much of a bad faith argument as it is until I was point about it being like a real sort of like reach and, and grasp in a very Trump style way. It also is very much serving its intended purpose. I, I mean, it's like it, it just in terms of pushing things and sort of like really having the ripple effect. I mean, like, it is working, I assume. I mean, Trump loves the delay. At, at least in the That's way, his... at least in the way that he, I think, probably intended it to work as a delay. It's I mean... totally working. I mean, for for the reason I said, which is that when it's an immunity claim, you put the sort of underlying case on hold, and I, I think that's what's really at work here. Um, if if the Supreme Court, you know, let's say the DC Circuit decides next week, I think they go to the Supreme Court. I think that takes at least. A couple of months, even if the Supreme Court goes at light speed, you know, maybe they hear the case in, I'm making this up, three weeks. And then, you know, you have nine justices and some of them, I think it's safe to say, are going to be sympathetic to Trump and may not rush out a decision. Um, And so I think you've just got, I think you've, you've, uh, I think for Trump, a lot of this is mission accomplished already just by getting this to where it is. Um, And I think, you know, you start to think about those ripple effects and they get pretty gnarly pretty fast. I mean, let, let's say it's, I don't know, July before the case gets kind of back on track and then it takes another couple of months to sort of assemble everything for trial. It's not obvious to me that like a trial in September or October goes forward. I mean, it, 
Judge Chetkin has been careful to say, you know, I can't manage this case around an election. I've treated him like every other criminal defendant. But that gets touchy when it's six weeks to the election and Trump's going to say, look, I'm a candidate for president. Like, I need to be allowed to campaign and go, like, to do things. That's not a frivolous argument. There are good sort of First Amendment reasons why a candidate should be allowed out there. And I think that starts to make this really, really hard. So then, so the the sort of big case that we are going to see ripple effects on from this immunity case are the DC criminal trial, the Jack Smith case. Is there, yeah. um, is there anything sort of beyond us awaiting this immunity trial that is going on in that case? Like what, with a case like that, that was really like ready to go pretty quickly prior to this kind of play for time, this, you know, this bad faith play for time, this classic, this is the most classic Trump maneuver that has ever been maneuvered by a person. Like playing for time, call appeals, ridiculous appeals. Like these are all like classic parts of his playbook and have been. It really is. And to decades. do it with like the chutzpah of I'm a hundred percent immune, right? Not like I'm right. immune from this case, or, but no, there's presidential immunity means you can't touch me. They literally asked his lawyers at the DC circuit argument. So are you saying that Trump while in office could order the military to murder or assassinate his political opponent and he couldn't be criminally tried for that? And they were like, that's correct. He'd have to be impeached. <laughs> like, which says that, that doesn't give away that the argument's bad <laughs> that's wild oh my gosh um so is there the, any the manifestation there... of his belief that he could go on fifth avenue and shoot somebody oh, yeah. he's right. like, no i literally could go on I, fifth so, avenue and shoot somebody. as president i'm allowed <laughs> so to do i know that. <laughs> so i know we're going to get into the specifics of the other cases that you know we've yet to talk about but does the immunity effect i know it has pushed this at the you know the case that we've just been talking about but does that also sort of like ripple to whether he can be tried in georgia or does is that because that's a state crime that can be like uh, how much of a ripple effect does this have this is a that is a tough question and i don't i don't know that there's an obvious answer i i, I could imagine a i really don't know you you could imagine a sort of supreme court ruling saying I mean, look, I don't think he has this immunity, so I don't think it's going to matter. Yeah, but you right. could imagine an immunity doctrine that said you're immune from federal crimes only. You could also imagine one that says, no, basically sort of you would what you would do if you were a court inclined to this immunity theory. And, and there are valid immunity theories is you kind of say, look, the structure of the Constitution requires that we find there to be some sort of an immunity so the presidents can do their jobs. That would have to bar states, too, from... Uh, you know, going forward with criminal prosecution, because sure. the theory would be it would kind of impede uh, or chill, you know, the conduct of of, of presidenting, uh, because they need to make all these sort of decisions on imperfect information uh, and make them quickly. And so if we're just deciding that they're immune when they do that, they kind of have to be immune from state law, too. Um, one thing it's worth noting, it won't slow down or shouldn't is the Florida case, the documents case. Now, Judge Cannon may do her darn just to slow that down herself. But um that case is really about post-presidential conduct, you know, of sitting on those documents right. uh, in Mar-a-Lago and storing them in various closets and bathrooms and offices. So that shouldn't be slowed down. Um, it'll just go when it goes. And I think it's currently scheduled for May. Oh, interesting. I thought that was, I, that's sooner than I thought it was going to go anyway. I mean, not that I think, I think, I don't think that judge has an incentive to speed us through this to protect us from the electoral fallout, but <laughs> to no. Protect us. no, I don't <laughs> think protecting us is the, I, I, I think the last I heard, 
it was scheduled for May sort of tentatively. Trump's lawyers asked her to delay it. And she, she referred to that request as premature, not as like denied, <laughs> just as not <laughs> sort ask of me later. at the wrong time. So <laughs> ask me later. Yeah. Cool. And is the immunity case then likely to define some parameters around presidential immunity that did not previously exist that will kind of have relevance going forward? I mean, it sounds like they will have to either determine that there is a limit to presidential immunity and but also maybe like let us know what that limit is um, in some more specific language than the drunk 25 year olds who wrote the Constitution did. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's why it's taking so long. And that's why it's going to take some time is that basically there is no doubt some amount of criminal immunity that presidents have while in office. And I think I, I think there's kind of two things that are obvious or obvious ish. One is, yes, there is some measure of criminal immunity. And two, it doesn't apply here. Uh, but the rest of the contours of that doctrine do need to be fleshed out. And that's literally the job of appellate courts, right? A trial court will basically say, no, it doesn't apply here. Here are the reasons. An appellate court has to really set a precedent and write an opinion that can be useful in other cases. Now, there are really limited exceptions, like the Bush v. Gore decision very famously has this sentence that is like kind of a, this is good for one right only. It says, you know, <laughs> these are unique circumstances and you shouldn't read this as a precedent, which I think a lot of people saw as like, Oh, you didn't really, you didn't really have the courage of your <laughs> convictions in this opinion. But setting that to the side, um, generally, yes, that'll be the task of the courts who hear this question. And that's going to be what makes it tough. Um, I think in a fast moving doctrine, the sort of judicial best practice and tendency is to sort of write what they might call like an incompletely theorized opinion. So they'll say, look, here's the, here's the, sort of broad contours and here's some vague language, you know, a president will have immunity when it's, you know, uh, has a sufficient nexus with the duties of his office. And then what that means will have to be fleshed out in future cases. And there's no immunity where there's no nexus, such as when he's a candidate. And that'll be like two camps. I mean, that could be one way to do it where you don't have to sort of define every single uh, circumstance. But yeah, that's gonna be hard. Did you just call that incompletely theorized? Is that what that was? An incompletely yeah. theorized opinion. Probably start using that. <laughs> I'm going about some, full, about some, about full some of my own, on this one. About some of my <laughs> own opinions. <laughs> oh, but see, uh, speaking yeah. of going full dork, you have a note in our doc under Supreme Court interpreting the interference with official proceedings case that claims it is the nerdiest but best thing and where you're going to earn your fee. Tell us why. <laughs> yeah, happy to. Um, I do get a fee, right? That's the yeah. Obviously, we're we pay <laughs> yeah. pretty highly uh, in this podcast, as you can imagine. <laughs> I'm not being paid. Uh, yeah. So, so this is this is my favorite case that I wanted to talk about. I mean, the other ones are uh, probably more important, but this one's really interesting. So, a number of the January six defendants and Trump uh, have been charged with, in addition, you know, various laundry lists of crimes, but they've been charged with obstruction of an official proceeding which sounds fairly straightforward. Congress was trying to count the votes, certify the election. They were obstructed from doing that. That felt pretty official, like this should be super easy. But there's a nuance here, which is that the obstruction of an official proceeding statute was, was uh, passed as part of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act in 2002, which is a financial crimes law passed after the Enron scandal, following the realization that like folks at Enron had destroyed a lot of documentary evidence that kind of showed all the uh, book book cooking. Um, 
So there is a challenge from one of the January 6th defendants, not Trump, but Lila, as you were saying, you know, when, a, when the Supreme Court decides these cases, they're going to set a precedent saying, this is not, these are not the droids you're looking for. Like, this is not the official proceeding they're talking about obstructing when they talk about this case. They're really talking about, like, obstructing a court proceeding by, you know, preventing the, you know, arrival of the FedEx truck that's bringing the, the, the important documents or the important evidence. And you should not read it to refer to this kind of an official proceeding. To an actually um, official proceeding, only an unofficial official, official proceeding. A, a, yeah, a, that a, probably an officially means... adjacent, an official adjacent proceeding. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the best version of the argument would go: by official proceeding, they mean court case, and by obstructing, they mean like preventing the introduction of key evidence. And they don't mean literally obstructing, like by coming in with a pitchfork. You know, <laughs> like a literal official, official proceeding, proceeding. <laughs> that isn't by a court. I mean. And here's here's the let me stop there and then I'll get it to see if there's anything I should stop and outline further. But I, I haven't if you can believe it, I'm not at the dorky part yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm already delighted by this uh, logic. I feel like interp using the language of obstruction of an official proceeding to not refer to literal obstruction or a literal official proceeding, but instead some vague, very narrow interpretation of what an official <laughs> proceeding is and what obstruction is, is already a delight. Continue, please. Well, this is why I've always called you Ly Lila Antonin Scalia Nordstrom, just you know, <laughs> avowed textualist. Just uh -huh. the text is clear. What else are we doing here? Uh -huh. um, here's, here's, the, here's the hang up and here's where it gets interesting. The leading case on how to interpret like this sort of chunk of Sarbanes-Oxley is this case called Yates versus United States. A commercial fisherman was, was caught uh, in federal waters having fished for, under, for what's called undersized fish under federal regulations. And there's a rule that said if you catch fish that are shorter than a certain amount to prevent kind of depopulating that fish population, you have to toss them back overboard. He's caught with these undersized fish um, he's instructed by the official who catches him, keep these fish in this box, come back in. And when you come back in, we're, we're going to book you for this. He throws all the undersized fish overboard to try to destroy the evidence uh, of, 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 of his violation. Um, and he's prosecuted for, among other things, a provision of Sarbanes-Oxley that says, whoever knowingly alters, destroys, mutilates, conceals, covers up, falsifies, or makes a false entry in any record document or tangible object with the intent to kind of impede an investigation shall be guilty of this crime. So to read kind of the key part, whoever knowingly destroys a record document or tangible object. And the government said, well, he destroyed a tangible object. How much, how much easier could this case get? A fish is an object that is tan a tangible object means an object you can touch. And a fish is an object you can touch. And he destroyed it. And the defendant said, the fisherman said, no, a document that says whoever alters, destroys, mutilates, conceals, falsifies a record document or object is talking about certain kinds of objects, objects that like hold information like documents and records. And this was passed as part of a financial law. And it is about records and hard drives and the files and like those sorts of things. It's not about any tangible literal object like a booger or a fish or a piece <laughs> of like anything, it is referring to certain kinds of things and any human being reading this would understand that. And the court agreed. 
and in an opinion by Justice Ginsburg, joined by Justice Sotomayor and Breyer and the Chief Justice and in part Justice Alito holds, no, of course, in context here, tangible object doesn't mean a fish, it means like things that hold information. And then in this wonderful dissent by Justice Kagan and then Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia and Justice Kennedy, the oh, latter two of whom are- These are wild teammates. What a- This is a wild <laughs> alignment. They say, I don't understand why this case is so hard. Tangible object right. means an object you can touch. A fish is an object you can touch. This case should be so easy. So all to say, there is this sort of precedent for reading Sarbanes-Oxley like within the context of, how it, of, of what it was passed to do. And there's this interesting lineup of like the folks who said, yeah, no, of course we have to read it kind of narrowly, including Justice Sotomayor and the Chief Justice and maybe some folks that we might think would be inclined to want to like make it easier to go after January 6th defendants, but who have previously, you know, and, and conversely, like Justice Thomas, who was like, no, 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 this is a broad statute that should go after anyone, read the text quite simply, you could imagine being inclined to want to limit the reach of this statute in this scenario. So I think that's what's, let me stop there, I've been kind of rambling on, but that's the dorky uh, statutory interpretation part I wanted to talk about. I think it makes this case kind of hard. That's interesting. I, was I mean, in no way imagining fish were involved in any of these cases. <laughs> But I think, you know, in the case of Thomas, at least specifically, I, I mean, he's happy to forget something that he previously decided if it serves as, you know, if it appropriately serves whatever end he's trying to get to in the moment. But uh, that, that, does, that doesn't make this any less. Totally well, because we still have the liberal justices are also split well, right, on this question. Yeah. And also, I, I, mean, I think you're going to find right. some. Some some gymnastics are going to be required yes. right. from both sides. I went I went for Thomas because it was sides. easy, but you're yeah. right. Yes, yes. Yeah. That's my point. I mm -hmm. think it's I, I share your view, Brent, that I, I don't think it's going to I think he'll find a way. And look, maybe this case is easier. Maybe obstructing an official proceeding really is the world's is just like an easier textual question. But like, yeah, I think Thomas probably finds that they want to read this more narrowly. But does like Justice Sotomayor think right. like that also we want to read it more narrowly? I, yeah. I don't know. Well, and also the the set like and destroying any record, document, or tangible object is pretty straightforward language to refer to, like literally any tangible piece of evidence. If you ask me, a person who thinks that obstruction of an official proceeding could include an official proceeding that you're obstructing, <laughs> but like this I, classic Lila, just reading the criminal law to be very broad and very right. criminalizing, just, and this you is know, such, this is I feel like such a. <laughs> an interesting way, an interesting ripple in a case that involves so many like obviously bad actions being undertaken yeah. in obviously criminal contexts to like right. be worrying about whether uh, whether that counts as an official, whether they meant official proceeding like only a court case or official proceeding like a proceeding that is official in some manner is like such a this is such a lawyery question to be it's asking. Such, no, exactly. This is why I said it's the nerdiest part for sure. And, and and just to be clear, right? This is not the only thing Trump is charged with. There well, are other things he's charged with. This doesn't he's got like, 91 indictments. the whole case. He's, he's got 91 counts indictments. But I do think it'll be, it's, it's interesting because it's one of the ones that sort of, I think is the most consequential and also is in some sense, like the most straightforward. It's the easiest to explain to a jury, like, hey, you know, I needed to prove to you two things. There was an obstruction and there was an official proceeding. <laughs> right. And if all of a sudden that's off the table, like that's going to be, that, that right. makes, I think, the presentation at least a little bit less straightforward.
Yeah. When also, if by official proceeding we mean court cases only, like have we've just like decided that words mean different things than words in this well, yeah, statute? This, you're getting I mean, this is the, this is the heart of lawyering, right? Is like words <laughs> do in fact mean different things in different things contexts, right. right? If I if I the, the classic example lawyers always give is like, um, you know, uh, uh, no, uh, I'm gonna screw this up. I should have come ready. But like, <laughs> no, no, um, no, like bikes, tricycles, or other vehicles like allowed in the in the playground. Like, it it's probably not referring to a stroller. Like, it's probably <laughs> talking about like the toys that like right. kids ride around on that have wheels. And so, like, even though it says or other vehicles, like. It's probably also not talking about a pickup truck. Like it, it, other vehicles is kind of defined by like the first two words in the context. The right? But I feel like that's actually right. the perfect example because that's a common sense interpretation of what that law would mean. Whereas like the official proceeding does not as a matter of common sense mean only court cases. Like I feel like we're talking about uh, words that don't in their context like necessarily have a common sense interpretation that same way. Whereas like that you're talking about like you know, in the context where we all know we're in a playground and we know what kinds of vehicles are likely to be in playgrounds and what they mean when they say, like, don't have things that can run over small children in your playground or whatever. Like, this is not, I don't feel like this is that I, I'm going to hear this case in front of this or try this case in front of the Supreme Court myself is what I'm saying. Just to see Look, if I can. Just, I agree with you. <laughs> but I, but I'm just saying there are some no, I mean... precedent there that makes it close. This fish case makes it close. <laughs> This fish case makes it close. <laughs> um, okay, so let's, we've spoken a little bit about the situation with Fonnie Willis in Georgia, but you also, I feel like, are a person who can, who A, has thoughts on this, and also can maybe provide some of the perspective that we, as people who just love the drama and gossip, cannot. Because yeah. as far as we go, like, we're just invested in any drama anywhere. And like, I would like to hear about what the legal consequences of the drama that we've invested in are. Yeah, I think this is so bad. So, so, so let me let me first say that in addition to, as you know, not representing the views of Alphabet, I also <laughs> don't have fully formed views on this because I don't know all the facts. All right. this stuff is coming out. There's a lot of innuendo and there's a lot of accusations and there's not a lot of evidence yet. So I think like that big grain of salt is important. With that said, this is so bad. Uh, and and I think there are like three reasons, and I, and I'll I'll do them in increasing order of of why they're bad. That I think this is bad. So and and just so we're all agreed, like on on what it looks like the facts are, Bonnie Willis, the DA in Fulton County, hired this you know additional outside lawyer to come help the the prosecuting team as like the special prosecutor, and he's paid by the hour, and also they are are now like an item romantically. There's at least the appearance of a financial conflict of interests, right? She, as mm -hmm. the district attorney, has the ability to like direct government funds into her boyfriend's pockets. And he's paid by the hour. And she, in many ways, like controls the complexity and duration of this case. So if she causes the case to like take forever, say by indicting 18 people under a RICO conspiracy yep. and having them all want to be tried separately, like, well, she didn't want them all tried separately. I guess she wanted them tried together. But, but, Say she takes steps to sort of increase the complexity of the case, a person could reasonably ask, is she doing that because she thinks it's in the best interest of the people of Fulton County or because she wants to like run up those bills? I'm not saying that's what's happening, but I'm saying someone could reasonably ask it. There's also the appearance of like a regular conflict of interest, like 
did she hire this person because she thought he was the best person for the job or because she knew him already and wanted to throw him some high profile work? And again, all those things could be that the answer is no, like she's doing absolutely all of this for all the right reasons. And it happens to be that this person's the best person, but there is this appearance problem. Yep. And then the third thing is just like, when you come for the king, you best not miss. You, you can't yep. be flirting near the line here. The, the pursuit of a popular former president for crimes relating to trying to reverse the results of an election, it's got to be perfect. Like yep. this is just such a like, it's just such an error of judgment, even if there ultimately isn't anything wrong. Yeah. It's just sloppy. Right. If he's, even if he's the most qualified person for this job, then you should be hiring the second most qualified person for this job. <laughs> right. And by the way, I think the, the, I think what I've learned, what I've seen is that maybe he's not the most qualified person for oh, this interesting. job. Like I think his, okay. this is his first RICO case yeah. is my understanding. Oh, jeez. Well, and also, so, you know, it, you just, know it, it bears out that, you know, this specific case, I, uh, more than any of the others, has had Donald Trump really sort of like going after everyone for being corrupt. And that had, right. uh, and that had a lot of, I think initially before we knew that maybe they were, I think that it sort of like rang, you know, it had a lot of undertones to it. Right. Like, exactly. I, I think, and, and you sort of now allow him to actually be right about it being corrupt. And I'm sure it's not as corrupt as he probably is would like to think that it is but i mean like it's just not you don't want to give him a chance to be right about anything like that's not what you're i agree for. this is exactly you're exactly right that, that that like actually the worst thing about it is he did it right trump is right. guilty <laughs> right he's guilty like, and all of those other people are guilty this is a case that we all definitively know in our hearts right. and also many of them facts. have pled guilty right. Right. <laughs> right. Only now he has this easy talking point if and when he loses. That's like, well, this was, you know, this was right from the start. This was just people helping out their friends. It's 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 really a shame. Yeah. Well, and also I, this is really in a lot of ways the most ambitious of these cases. Right. I mean, the Rico charges sort of made it a different kind of case, at least in terms of how media was portraying it. This felt like a sort of splashier case than a lot of the other state cases, certainly than the New York state cases. Um that I think just from a narrative perspective, because obviously what I care about is the political narrative here more so than the legal yeah. narrative. Like from a narrative perspective, this was an incredibly important case because it felt bigger than a lot of the other cases. Yeah, no, and and I'm, I'm not an expert on RICO and I'm not uh, a criminal law expert either. So I, I'm kind of flirting with the edge of what I can sort of confidently talk about, but I, but but it certainly was. I mean, a huge number of defendants, huge number of of uh, of, of counts, a really long complaint, um, and and I think you know I, I was expecting, and I kind of still do that. Like they've got the goods, but I think um, this definitely complicates it. It also, and and here too, I'm. This is something I've I, I heard, but I'm, I haven't independently confirmed. As I understand Georgia law, if there's a concern with sort of the impartiality of the prosecutor. There is a state law mechanism to replace her, uh, mm -hmm. but it goes to like a state law panel that would select another person. And as I understand it, there is not a sort of time period in which that panel has to act. So oh, fine. you could imagine in a you know conservative state. That's what I was. Um, yeah. Right. Right. That yeah, like she's, that, that she's elected so in fast. Atlanta, but once it goes to the state of Georgia, Georgia, you're 
running into different problems. You're in a different situation. Yeah. yeah. So this this could be like a little bad or very bad, but it's but it's bad at least. <laughs> Does I mean, I feel like on the one hand, yes, very bad. Um, does the fact that there are already, you know, sort of, there are already plenty of people who have been charged by this point under this case and also have pled guilty under this case, including other high profile, you know, um, in, indictees, I don't know the, um, people yeah, who have defendants. been indicted, <laughs> other high profile people. Um, I mean, does the, does does this just present a narrative problem or does there become a legal problem when it comes to some of the parts of this case that have already kind of been acted on? Other people have already had their cases tried under this. They have already been handed out um, penalties. Like, is is there like enough of a problem here that any of that could be called into question or is this just like a perception problem at this moment? I don't know. I don't yeah, think I mean, so. I don't think there should be a real strictly legal problem. I, you know, the, the general question would be like, was there some conflict of interest that led you to sort of, you know, bring the case for reasons other than what was merited under the law? And I think that's sort of a tougher connection to make. Yeah. Um, the evidence like is there, the complaint, you know, the, the indictment, like certainly sort of lays out some crimes, you know, oh, that, so we all that, like, know, he true. Did it. <laughs> we know yeah, he did I it because it was reported on at of... the time. And we remember well, right. that's what I was going to say, so, like, if we're deciding whether they're going to over, whether he over attempted to overturn the election in the state of Georgia. And we have, and we know he did, phone, we have phone calls of him, <laughs> right. He literally attempting to do so. So it's not as if she made up this case, you know, based on no, 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 exactly. <laughs> right. I, I think it certainly calls into question. I don't know. It maybe it, the most, the thing it most calls into question is her conduct, I think, right, in right. her office yeah. and, and whether, uh, I think the special prosecutor's kind of selection for that position was kind of done in the right way as maybe like a good government ethics thing. And again, right. I, I'm not drawing any conclusions. I don't know. I don't think it affects the case as much, though, again, could be possible that she's removed as the prosecutor and someone else has to press the case. Yeah. It's also possible Georgia selects somebody who doesn't want to keep pressing the case. So yep. still bad, but but no, I don't think I don't think it's grounds to like dismiss the indictment or something. Yeah. Okay, good. At least we have that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we talked already, I think, about what we were going to talk about with the Florida case, um, yeah. just that the immunity claim is not relevant there. Um, is there anything else going on in the Trump legal um, universe that you want to <laughs> you want to touch on before we close? He's uh, he keeps it interesting. You know, he's got a lot of <laughs> interesting. I, I, I think I think there's a big I think, look, I think the big question right now is timing. So yeah. the Florida case is scheduled to go trial in May. We'll see if that holds. Uh, the DC case was scheduled to go in March and, and judge Chuckton just took that off the calendar. So we'll see when that goes. Um, I think if, if, if none of these are really heating up until the fall, I think you're going to face like a very, very touchy question of whether judges want to be having a trial, like in the weeks before an election. And I think that's a genuinely hard question that I'm, you know, kind of glad I'm not one of those judges. Um, I think if you look at the civil case in New York that just that is wrapping up before Judge Angeron, the New York State case, like 
I'm glad that that is kind of finishing up sooner. And I guess my only closing thought is I think that I think it was interesting how he uh, handled that case. He sort of let Trump get away with a lot. He let him make his own closing statement. He did all these things. I think that was generally in the manner, in the sort of vein of, uh, you know, I want my ruling to be bulletproof on appeal. So I'm not going to let anyone say I didn't let him say his piece, you know, to do the things he wanted to do. Um, that case might have the cleanest record going up on appeal. And all these other ones are getting pretty messy. Is what happens if Trump wins the election while all these cases are just swirling around? Like, good question. Are we allowed to try a sitting president for any of these things? Is his next argument going to be that I can't be tried for past crimes as the current president? Yes, probably. Well, I, I mean, think yes. I, I know the answer to that. Yeah. <laughs> what am I saying? You mean, will he argue for more time? Right. Yes, yes. <laughs> always does. But that argument's pretty good. I, I, I think. Yeah. I, I think that. Um he probably can't have to sit through a trial as a, as a sitting president. I think that would be more of a ruling about the nature of being president and how all consuming it is. Um, it would not be, these are all dismissed. It would be, they're all on hold until he's out of office. Um, but yeah, she never would be again. Real, so <laughs> which he might not ever be. Again. So that would be a real problem. Is he really only running for president because that's the best way to keep himself out of jail? <laughs> That's certainly part of it, but don't you get the sense that he's also running as like a vengeance play? Like oh, he, he wants to oh, yeah, poke a lot yeah. of people in the eye and own oh, the list. Yeah. 100%. Oh, for sure. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's got to be at least 90% of it. And the other thing yeah. also is 90%. <laughs> yeah. But he could very effectively run out the clock here and actually buy himself the time as he's always dreamed of. Yeah, I'm I, I'm seeing it as like at least a coin flip right now that he's able to effectively do that for sure. Really? Well, yeah. that's terrible news. Not loving it. Um, well, so thanks that, for coming no, on. No, <laughs> <laughs> no thank I, you so much yeah. for explaining I wish I all give of you that. Better news. <laughs> um, thanks for having we, me. Thanks for letting me nerd out about the fish case. Well, anytime. No, this has been so great because Lyle and I literally every time like one of these things happened or something goes to appeals or this or that, uh, like we've been being like, we just need Ben to tell us about this. And we've been saying that to ourselves and to for our weeks. listeners for months, really, probably. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you, guys are, yeah. you guys are too nice. It's always a pleasure. <laughs> Great. Well, um, we assume we'll have you back here at some point for further updates on these cases, because certainly we're going to get lost again. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for coming on. And as for the rest of you, we will talk to you guys next week. Bye. Bye. 